0: Uh, back when I was in the fourth or fifth grade, I can't remember, Uh, I was, you know, during the summers, my brother and I, I have a twin brother, my brother and I, we would hop on our bikes and we would, you know, ride around the neighborhood and uh, up and down the street with our friends, um, enjoying, just exploring and, you know, doing that thing that you do on summer vacations, you just ride around the town. Uh, For some reason, I remember being into BMX biking. at that age. Uh, you know, I think I saw a stunt biker come to one of our Boy Scout camps, uh, you know, doing their tricks and stuff. And I was just so amazed by it. I think maybe I saw it in a magazine some, somewhere. I don't know. But these guys were doing all these crazy things on their bike. And I think that I've always kind of wanted to be one of those guys. you know. I, i 'm thirty five now so I think those days have passed but i 'm okay with that i 'm okay. Uh, I can just inspire my son micah to to start early right So you know, as a fifth grader, I would try some of these stunts myself and see what happened and Well, uh, one of these tricks was called the donkey kick <laughs> And, you know, the donkey kick is when you're riding along and you brake in such a way that your, you know, your front tire stays on the ground, but your back tire goes up in the air a little bit. I don't know why they call it donkey kick versus a horse kick or whatever, but so this donkey kick, my bike did not have those hand brakes, you know, Uh, they just had the brakes on your pedals, so to do a donkey kick, (laughs) <laughs> to do a donkey kick, I would stick my right foot in the uh, at the little spot where the front tire met the bar that went up to the your handlebars, you know. So that would make my back tire go up a little bit, you know. Uh, I felt pretty cool about it. I felt pretty good, you know. Leaning every now and then, I would get more confident in it, more confident growing in my ability to be a BMX stunt biker. Well one time I was going a little too fast and so I stuck my foot in the in the tire and the next thing I know my back tire pops up, it goes over my head then it goes over the front tire and there I am upside down on the street. Just, I, I donkey kicked all the way over. Well, I don't know about you, but I like to keep my head on this side of my feet. Okay, Uh, It's the same thing in the swimming pool. Uh, I've never been one of those guys who just likes to jump off the diving board or the side of the pool and just do flips. Uh, I like to kind of know what I'm doing. I'm more of a jackknife, get the... uh, the lifeguard wet, you know, cannonball kind of guy, get all the sunbathers wet. I just like to keep my head above my feet. I like being right side up, okay? That's how I like it. Well, last week, Chris invited you into that glorious part of Matthew's gospel known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, did, he do it, did he do it from memory, by the way? Yeah? Yeah, yeah that guy's wicked smart. So, to challenge him, I'm going to do all of Matthew's gospel from memory tonight. Alright? Well, I hope you got a good hour and a half. To, so, <laughs> Well, in that sermon, Jesus shows us how to live right side up. In what seems to be an upside down kind of world, Jesus tells us that there is available a way to live that is right side up. And Jesus' Sermon on the Mount gives us a picture of that kind of life. But only when we read it in context. When we read the Sermon in cont- out of context, it becomes what it was never meant to be. In context, Jesus' Sermon comes after his first sermon, as Chris said last week. I got a chance to hear it uh, this past week. And so Chris mentioned that, you know, this is really Jesus' second sermon in Matthew. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 come after chapter 4, verse 17, after Jesus' baptism, after Jesus emerges from the wilderness and says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or has come near. That's the context of this Sermon on the Mount. The context of the Sermon on the Mount is this good news, this incredibly wonderful news that the Kingdom of Heaven really has come near in Jesus Christ. Letter Street's Covenant Church is being built upon this proclamation, is being formed by this announcement of Jesus. It's the proclamation that in him, the kingdom of heaven is breaking into this world. It's invading and transforming every aspect of life as we know it. Private stuff, public. public. Religious, secular. Visible, invisible. It's the kingdom. It is a kingdom that is displacing the kingdoms of this world, little by little, slowly and surely. It's God's rule. Over the entire world that forms a new community of people, a new race of people, even doing the works of the kingdom it 's here, Jesus says, so turn around, repent, and put your full weight on that good news i don 't know how many of you saw the Grammys last week last Sunday night, I think you were having church or something, so uh, but it was on a little bit it was on after church, anyway, one of the artists, Lady Gaga. comes to the Staples Center inside of this egg-looking thing. You know, it's like a pod, some kind of pod some sort. And Carrie, you know, she's carried by some guys in in weird costumes. Well, her creative director explained to one of the interviewers that Lady Gaga was incubating, and would be giving birth to a new race that night, A race that doesn't have the ability to judge or hate in their DNA. Uh, Lady Gaga the next day said that she came in an egg because she wanted, she herself wanted a rebirth. And she thinks that the universe needs a rebirth as well. Well, I actually agree with her on that. I think the universe and me. We do need a rebirth. I just think that there's only one person who has the ability to bring about such a thing. Only Jesus Christ can bring about this life that revolutionizes and transforms a person, a group of people, transforms a neighborhood, transforms a family, transforms the world. So if we forget or ignore this good news, then the Sermon on the Mount becomes something it was never meant to be. Again, as I was listening to Chris uh, tell the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I don't know how you felt when you heard it for the first time or maybe for the second or third or multiple times. But for me, uh, I can tend to swing between two two poles. On on the one hand, Jesus' words... (coughs) can seem so frustratingly idealistic. Hard to live up to. On the other hand, his words can seem so oppressively legalistic at the same time. Oh, man, all this stuff. Either we can become so overburdened with guilt for not living up to this way of life, or we can become disillusioned and discouraged with Jesus' lofty and high call of living. It, sometimes it's, it's easy to land on one of those two uh, poles. However, in the context of the gospel, the Sermon on the Mount becomes neither oppressive legalism nor frustrating idealism. But it becomes a picture of what life was always meant to be. As someone has put it, the sermon is a description of the kind of life that a person gripped by the gospel can have. It is a description of the kind of life a group of people can thrive in when Jesus gets a hold of their hearts. It's a description of the kind of life that a church can share with the world to show what it means to be a human being. To show what it really means to be human The sermon describes a way of life more than it prescribes a way of life. Which is why the sermon ultimately brings us face to face with the preacher of the sermon. Jesus brings this new life to the world by his work on the cross. It is my prayer that we would meet Jesus Christ himself in the Sermon on the Mount sermon begins with eight blessings, and Chris has asked me to share a little bit, talk a little bit about the first blessing tonight. So, first, would you pray with me, and then we'll dive in. Lord Jesus, would you be our teacher tonight? Would you open our eyes and our ears to hear what you have to say tonight? To us. Help us to be obedient to what you have to say to us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Matthew chapter 3, I mean, chapter 5, verse 3. And let's read. All of these eight blessings, the Beatitudes is what they're called. They get that title, Beatitudes, from the first word in the Latin translation of this text, Beatitudes. So, Matthew chapter 5, and we'll just read these, first verse 3 through 12, page 661 in your Bible if you need it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you." So allow me to say three things first about these Beatitudes as a whole and then ask two questions. So, three observations, two questions. First, notice that these Beatitudes are packaged around the words, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first and the last blessings both have the same result. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When scripture writers bracket a group of verses like this, it can be taken to mean that we can read that theme into what comes between them. We see that as well in Psalm 8, for example. In other words, we can read, "For theirs is the kingdom of heaven," into each beatitude. So, not only can we say, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven," but we can also say, "Blessed are those who mourn, for theirs." Is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The bracketing shows that each beatitude is but a different aspect of the kingdom Jesus brings. So, a different aspect of the kingdom Jesus brings. Second, let's talk about the meaning of the word blessed. The Greek word for blessed is Makarios. Some translations render this word as happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. Uh, But to render makarios as happy seems to me to be a little bit misleading. uh, Because the word happy derives from another word, happenings. So being happy in this sense is based on the quality of circumstances or what is happening around you at the moment. Uh, The reason it's misleading is that it puts the emphasis on the wrong place. Makarios does not turn on how you or I feel, but about how God feels about a certain situation. Blessed does not turn on how you or I feel about our situation in life, but about how God feels about our situation in life. Now, when we learn how God feels about the happenings of our life, then we may very well feel happy ourselves, but again, it's a happiness based on God. So, blessed could mean happy, but for me, you need to clarify that, what you mean by that word, happy. Um, Others have used the word fortunate. Fortunate are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I like that one. Uh, Others have used congratulations, Congratulations are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Karl Barth, one of the most prolific 20th century theologians, translated this word, makarios, as... uh, this, This is interesting. You lucky bums. You lucky bums who are poor in spirit, yours is the kingdom of heaven. You lucky bums who are pure in heart, you get to see God. I think of the word blessed uh, like a full, rich, in-tune chord, like our worship team was singing tonight. Uh, when each note is set in just the right place within a chord, something amazing happens. You've all experienced it. You get the little tinglys on your arm, you get goosebumps, Your the hair on the back of your neck uh, begins to tingle with enjoyment. Well, these Beatitude qualities work together to create something so beautiful and so resonant. They create a beautiful life. A life resonating with the glory of God. So I kind of like to picture this word blessed as um, being so in tune with what God has for you. Your life just resonates with His glory. A third thing about these beatitudes as a whole is that these qualities are not natural human qualities in other words we are not born in spirit born poor in spirit we do not enter life (laughs) out of a egg or pod at the Grammy Awards pure in heart or merciful Or peacemakers. Now those of you with kids know that already. (laughs) Kids aren't born naturally poor in spirit or pure in heart or merciful. Uh, my son tonight, just this afternoon. Uh, I have two, I have two boys, one who's four years old and one who's eleven months old, so almost a year. And the eleven month old Levi, he likes to get into all of Micah's toys, you know. And so Micah didn't like that this afternoon, and you know he <laughs> pushed, started just pushing him away, sliding. We have hardwood floors, so he's just sliding across this this uh, this floors. And Levi thinks it's uh, you know a great little ride. He's like. Ah! Um, But, you know, Micah doesn't like Levi playing with his toys. These qualities are not, we're not born with these qualities. We can't produce these qualities in us just by sheer effort. They are not natural human qualities. Jesus Christ did not come to earth to walk around Palestine looking for these kind of people whom he could then call into his kingdom. Oh, you're poor in spirit? Come Oh, you're already merciful? Follow me. I'll take you. You can be on my team. They are not natural human qualities. Instead, they are the result of Jesus introducing this new world order. They come as a result of submitting to this king. They're the result not of my own effort, but the result of being infused with the character of Jesus Christ. The result of people being called to himself when we try to become poor in spirit, we can easily become proud that we are so poor in spirit. These are not natural human qualities. So on the whole, we can see that the Beatitudes reveal to whom the Kingdom belongs. These qualities of working together create a life in tune with the reality of God's Kingdom. But these qualities are not natural human qualities. Which is why the sermon begins where it does. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's the only place Jesus can begin. So two questions to end our time together tonight. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And how do we live that out? First, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? There's two words in the Greek that Jesus could have chosen to use for the word poor. First is penes, which applies to those who have to work all the time, but they make it work. They don't have a lot, but they, um, they have to work all the time just to get by. Jesus uses a different word, and it's the word potokoi, which applies to those who are so destitute that they are forced to beg from other people. The first word, panes, refers to those who have at least a little something. The second refers to those who have nothing at all, absolutely nothing. And it's that word that Jesus uses in the first beatitude. Some of you know Luke's version of this sermon and this part of the sermon. Luke simply says, blessed are the poor, Period. So, you know, some people have asked if there is a discrepancy between Luke and Matthew. Has Matthew spiritualized Luke by saying poor in spirit? Or has Luke socialized Matthew just by taking off in spirit and just by saying poor? Luke's word for poor is the potokoi word as as well in Matthew. Uh, Well, Luke's gospel is very much about the last, the lost, the least, so it fits well with Luke's purpose for writing. But it also might seem like he's saying, be poor for the sake of being poor, so that you'll be blessed. But I don't think that is what Luke is really saying. I think Matthew and Luke are essentially saying the same thing. We see throughout the scriptures that there is a divine disposition to those who are powerless towards the orphan, the widow, the poor. Those who experience great injustice. God is a champion for those who are the least of society. There is a divine preferential option for the lowest of the low. Yet at the same time, Scripture does not hold up poverty as the ideal human condition. It's not any more virtuous to be poor. I've known folks who have been prideful in their poorness and saying everybody else should be as spiritual as they are. But Scripture does not romanticize material poverty or say that we're better off living this way. The whole point of Matthew and Luke, the point is that the poor in spirit know that they desperately need God. Their very existence hangs on God and God alone. The poor come before God with empty hands and empty pockets... With absolutely nothing to offer with which they can earn the kingdom of heaven. Absolutely nothing. They come before God with empty hands and empty pockets, ready to receive from Him whatever He gives. Their life is in His hands. That's who the poor in spirit are. So, how do we live it out? Well, first, in ourselves. Any person who goes through a recovery program will tell you that the only place you can start is to admit you have a problem. You admit you can't live out what you know you should be living out. Paul talks about that in Romans 7, by the way. At First Baptist Church, we run a Christ-centered recovery program together with Trinity Lutheran Church. Uh, It's called Celebrate Recovery. We meet every Wednesday night. And the first step in Celebrate Recovery goes like this. Realize that I'm not God, that I'm powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing, and that my life has become unmanageable. Realize that I'm not God, that I'm powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing, and that my life has become unmanageable. I hate that first step. I don't want to admit that my life has become unmanageable. That's the first beatitude. Realize I'm not God. Realize that your attempts to live righteously before God are like filthy garments that you can't get clean no matter how often you try to to wash them. Jesus is the one who washes you white as snow. When we read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, there's only one place To begin as we seek to live it out. And it's right here at the very first line. We hear Jesus teach, whoever is angry with his brother is in danger of the fires of hell. We hear Jesus say, anyone who looks after a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery with her we hear jesus say no one can serve two masters and do not worry about your life we hear him say turn the other cheek and love your enemies and the only thing we can say is i'm gonna need your help on this there's no way i can do that and then we hear congratulations you lucky bum Blessed are you. You are in tune with the kingdom of heaven. You're starting right where you need to start. In ourselves. Second, we live it out in our attitudes towards others. So in ourselves and in our attitudes towards others. When we realize how spiritually poor we are and that God has redeemed us through no merit of our own, it affects the way we view others. And especially the materially poor we can't be indifferent to those who are poor because we have experienced so much grace when we were deeply in debt before God we cannot say to someone else well you just need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps get on with it go get a job or something come on Jesus stepped in for us when we were down When we see someone else's tattered clothes, we are reminded that our own righteousness, again, is like filthy rags before the Lord. And that in Christ, we have been clothed in his own garments of righteousness. And we cannot say to someone else, you got yourself into this mess, you get yourself out. Because God entered into our mess, moved into our spiritually poor neighborhood and helped us even though our spiritual problems were our own fault so you see Jesus begins at the only place to begin blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven would you pray with me Lord, I thank you for the gift of this first line. Help us to keep coming back to this first these first words of your sermon over and over and over and over again. <clears throat> as we tr- as we look to live in obedience to your sermon, we recognize and realize that we can't do it on our own efforts. We realize the depths of our Inability to live the way we know we should live. Help us to live in the gospel of the Sermon on the Mount and the first beatitude. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.